Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation co-hosted by Lenya Wilson and myself, Alexandra Detalia. Listen to our conversations while we discuss race and womanhood at the hearth level. So today you're interviewing me. We're episode five. Yes. And um, in episode six, I interview you and, and listeners, we decided to do this because in order to sort of, I feel like you need to understand us a little bit more in order to engage more in our conversations and understand where we might be irreverent, where we're not being irreverent. And so here we go. I have no idea. Lenya, I have no idea what you have planned. I'm very nervous. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you the things that I don't know about you, which is, I mean, I guess it's a lot, but not that much. <laughs> All right. Oh, it's like, oh boy. All right. Okay. So let's start at the beginning because I feel like we've touched on this in, in episode one about your upbringing and how different it was to, you know, I guess the average middle-class white woman. So Let's talk about how you grew up as, as a child. Let's talk more about Vicky and the third grade because that <laughs> fascinated me. My mom grew up in Brooklyn. My dad grew up in a small town in New Jersey outside New York City, which was both, both of them grew up in Italian American immigrant enclaves while my dad was in law school. And my mom- How did they was, meet? They met in college. And it's, it's such a great story. They both went to Pace College in New York commuter school and my dad had done two years in the army and so was I think a year behind my mom and this is lore I have no idea how true any of this is but this was my mother's story is that you know my mother would sit in the front row be very engaged and my dad I guess would sit in the back row and then they would meet in the commuter like cafeteria and my dad would just ask questions Socratically I'm sure and ask tons of questions and then he would get A's and my mother would struggle and get the B and she just hated him. She couldn't stand him. And so from that, but they were both very much involved in the anti-war protests at the time. And so they were, they were very active on campus. And I, so I guess romance bloomed. And the story really was that I think she, when she graduated, she proposed to him and he supposedly sold his trumpet to buy an engagement ring, but it wasn't like he was some famous trumpet player. So I don't really understand the romance of that, but I guess it's romantic. And then they moved to Newark. New Jersey. And my mom was a social worker, went to social work school and my dad went to law school and, and I was born in 67. And like my mom was in the Newark riots in 1967, pregnant with me. And then we moved to Orange. Orange is a North suburb of New York city, but then you have Newark, that satellite city. So it's right next door to Newark, New Jersey. It's an urban suburb depending on where you are in orange, it can feel very urban or it can feel very suburban. And my dad became president of the Board of Education right in the busing crisis of the 70s. And they rejected Catholicism early on, but in the sense that while everybody else is like going to church or going to temple or doing whatever, my parents were sort of exploring the 4-H club or, you know, trying to figure out a way to build community without religion. And that really came through politics, a, a lot of it. I grew up in, I mean, it was such a great place because it really was, it was like a gang of 10 kids, like in two or three block area 
We had bikes and skateboards. Maybe people were as old as 14 and as young. My sister might've been on the youngest end at like four. And like a gang that all hang out, all different like races. And we would wander around. I mean, it was that freedom that people still talk about, about from the seventies where, you know, there was an abandoned lot, like sort of around the corner and we would all go and play ball there, play kickball there. And then, you know, we would have to be home by dark. And the older kids like knew the, the shortcuts through all the backyards because in New Jersey, especially back then, there was no fencing. So you could like cut through all the yards. So it was really magical. And then in grammar school, my friend Jenny, who was I think a year ahead of me, she was white and grew up like two or three blocks away from me. And my friend Carolyn, who was white, lived behind us. But then, you know, they weren't in my classes. Those were neighbors. And then in my class, I, I was, I was the only white girl. And my best friends were really like Donna and Vicky. And those are the two, the, the two that really stand out in, in my memory. And, you know, go to their houses after school, like all the things that you do in like second and third grade. And, and the culture was different. Like I did feel like it was, I was aware that it was different. I was aware in the sense that my parents listened to opera. So I didn't have exposure to pop music as a child at all. I was already going to ballet school. So it was classical music all the time. And I remember going to, I mean, I think it was Vicky's house and like listening to her Stevie Wonder like album collection. And like my mind was blown, you know, I mean, it was just so amazing. And that was really my first pop music and that I loved. And it was my first exposure, but even then, like everybody back then loved good times. Like that was the favorite show. Mm. And while I was in love with Keith Partridge from the Partridge family and Michael, of course, who didn't have a crush on Michael from good times, but I did feel like I was sort of a traveler in that culture. I didn't grow up in the projects. I had no, that glimpse into, into the projects of New York at that time that it's, at least it seemed like, and again, I was in third grade, we weren't having conversations about this, but it seemed to be resonate with, with my friends at the time in a way that, oh, I have family there. Oh, like this is, this is real, you know? And for me, I was like, wow, it just, it just blew my mind. And I have to say that exposure as a young kid, it, it, it's just natural. It's imprinted, you know, where things just imprint on you. So I think I just had a sense of certain things that were, that I'm so grateful for that I didn't have to have to be intellectually exposed to something. I was just emotionally exposed okay. to different cultures as a child. And then, you know, since my parents were such activists about it, you know, the truth is, it's that even though we didn't have the word anti-racism at the time, we were taught that condoning, like silence is condoning. And we would role play, you know, what if somebody says the N-word, what do you do? You know, you can't walk away. What are you going to say? You have to say something. You cannot, you know, because you feel insecure, you can't worry about being judged. Like you have to say something and there we played a lot of role playing. What do you do when somebody says, makes a joke about a Jewish person? What are you going to do? And we would actually have to have responses. And, you know, and then when I moved, actually, it's kind of funny when I moved to 
Maplewood, which was much more white. I got to say, I also then felt like I got, they used to say, oh, is there a ring around the tub? Like that was the thing I'd get all the time because I'm Italian, right? So you're, you're a dirty wop, you know, you're a dirty wop. And I, and I was like, I didn't even really, you know, I had to be there like, dad, what does wop mean? And it, without papers, you know? And so. Oh my God. I didn't even know that. Oh yeah. Like, so the thing is, is that all of a sudden I had my experience also a little bit, a little bit, you know, as other. And then the fact that I was an atheist, I mean, Lenya, (laughs) being fourth grade and I was an elder child and I'm pretty bossy is that I would go and announce to everybody that I was an atheist in the fourth grade. Well, that one doesn't set you up for friends. And two, it does set you up to have to argue with people all the time. And so I would be like in argument in fourth grade. Well, you know, who made you, you know? And I would say, what, we evolved, you know? And they would be like, but who made the monkeys? And I'd be like, you know, and we would take it all the way back to the big bang. And they're like, but who made the big bang? And I would be like, oh my goodness. Like, and that would be the kind of discourse I would have in the fourth grade. But I think I just got very used to having, in essence, a minority point of view, like, and always just being a little, being outspoken about that. And it just didn't even occur to me that you should be any other way. Interesting. Well, I want to I want to talk about your parents because I know a lot about your mom because I read essays and I read that beautiful love letter you wrote to your stepmom. Yeah. So I know a lot about your moms, but I don't know a lot about your dad. And I want to and I feel like he has shaped a lot of who you are, especially the lawyer in you. Yeah. It's so, my dad is going to kill me. So like so dad, <laughs> I'm really sorry. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, you know, my dad, it's hard, it's hard to know. My dad's a rock star. It's hard to live as it's, it's hard enough to be a, a Gen Xer where you kind of know you're not going to do better than your parents to begin with. But then you have my dad, you just know you're not going to do better. And you just live in that shadow. Is your dad a judge? Was your dad a judge? He was a judge. So my dad, I mean, the thing is, is my dad grew up poor, like on, you know, whether it was welfare or food stamps, but grew up with nothing. His mother had him at 16. And he was the eldest of four children. And I, it's his story to tell, not mine, but grew up in a very ugly, 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 ugly household, a very ugly household. And he basically, after, after high school, I mean, he left in a sense of like running away, but he joined the army and ran away and he missed Vietnam by, you know, a sliver of one or two years, uh, but ran away to the army. And, and then after that on the GI Bill, went to college. And he is the complete American success story because from, from that, he went to law school, first in his family to go to college, first in the family to go to law school and worked in a law firm. But you know, the funny thing is his first case after graduating law school was defending a Black Panther. And you know, my first case after law school was also working on a former Black Panther case. We have that in common. And, And basically was a lawyer for years. Again, his story to tell, I don't think he was happy being an attorney. I mean, I, yes, he was not very happy being an attorney, but he was really good at it. And I do remember him taking me to court 
once to see him argue. And, and I went to work with my mom a lot as a social worker and she was amazing too. But I just remember seeing my dad argue and the, the person who went against him was this bumbling, inarticulate person who got his argument forward, but just really wasn't prepared. There was no charisma in the room. And when my dad spoke, it was as if the room felt quiet. He was, he made his argument. It was so logical and so reasonable. And it really was this moment. I was like, I want to be articulate like that. <laughs> so it wasn't even that I was wanted to be a lawyer. I just wanted to express myself the way he expressed himself. And, and we did not have a easy relationship growing up. We fought a lot and a lot. We did not get along. We get along very well as adults. But I mean, the fact is, is that he's, he became a judge. He was appointed judge in 89, 90, something like that. I was already grown and out of college when he became a judge. He had an amazing career as a judge. And if you Google him, he's done good things for the world as a judge, including on 9-11, we were holding enemy combatants, right? And police yeah. stations were holding people and not releasing the names of the people that were being held. And my dad is the judge in New Jersey who said, you can't do that. And he cited, I th- he cited a lot of precedent, but will be interested for any of my former law students out there. He cited some old like 1890s jailer law about <laughs> how when you jail somebody, you have to have a list of people available to the public who's in jail. What's interesting is uh, Bush's executive order came down and crushed that decision. Like, but what's interesting is like my dad was fully engaged. He had a little bit of fame in the New York Times. And, and I mean, and that's not the only decision he's done that, that's been for, for public service. But he's led a life of integrity that I really admire. And also he has an amazing capacity for joy, which does not run in my family. <laughs> so, so I use him as a model because I do think he is capable of doing all this stuff, but rather than seeing the worst in the world or having a negative worldview, he has a very positive worldview and sort of what I call, he doesn't say this, but he chooses joy. And that I'd say since I was 40, I've really used that as a model, as a much healthier outlook on life. So I think your dad's going to love this. <laughs> well, it's well edited. I haven't given any of the drama. It took my dad and I a long time to get to this point, but I've always, you know, you he's always there. been a rock star in my life. I mean, there isn't, and the truth is, I, you know, why he influenced me as a lawyer. I, I just think my parents, and I think it was both of them. I, I don't think it was just my dad. They They brought me up in a household where reasonable discussion was what you had to partake in. Like, so the fact is I didn't even have a normal curve. I didn't have a curfew, like just be home by midnight. They didn't have that. I had a curfew that was reasonable to the activity I was going to do. So basically I had to ask for, you know, I said, okay, I'm going out to a movie. Then we're going out to get a burger after. Okay. Then the movies at this time, it takes you this long. This is the drive. Kids are kids. Like you get home at X time. You know, so everything was reasonable. There were no rules. But even when, you, when you're sort of bred that way, 
or at the dinner table. And friends would hate to come to dinner because he would hold court at dinner, much the way I think he probably did in college. But he would say, what did you learn in school today? And then he would really take it, which is the Socratic method. He would keep asking questions until you screwed up. And then when you screwed up, he would dig and investigate more. Do you know how stressful those dinners were? Like if you didn't know, if you were reading a book and didn't know the author, oh, God help you. God help what was going to happen to you at dinner. Like it just was not a pleasant experience. So like when I'm hard on my students about like, you know, know things, it's really important. Like know everything through and through. Don't bullshit anything because you're going to get caught. Like I don't, with that fake it till you make it, I really don't agree with that adage. I think it lets too many fakers through. Like fake it till you make it while you're doing all the hard work to get there. That works for me. But the fake it till you make it if you're just a poser, oh, it doesn't work at all because like I'll call you out on it. And my and I learned that from my dad. Like you just can't pose at all. So So how long did you actually practice law? Well, that's a complicated question because I practiced full time, I would say probably only three years max. Wow. Part time, maybe a decade. And what did you do on the other side? Part time law and part time, what else? So I quit the law many times. So, so, <laughs> but the, I guess at some point in San Francisco, I was a freelance writer. So I was doing writing for SF Weekly. I was, I ran a literary journal with friends. I was writing short fiction and starting to publish. I taught LSAT prep for Princeton Review. I taught at Golden Gate as an adjunct law professor and eventually became just a part-time law professor there. And I was an appellate attorney taking maybe two cases a year. And then I also was a legal treatise writer, which is where actually the money came that I could pay rent because none of the other things that I talked about (laughs) paid rent at all. And that was for like LexisNexis. And I updated their treatises and wrote chapters for them. And that was, I made my living until we moved to LA. So until 38 or 39. Well, when did you start creative writing? Because have you always been creative? Yes. Well, I haven't always been creative in the sense that, you know, I was such a kid that like colored inside the lines until about 25, but (laughs) I wrote a play in high school that got published in my high school writings for other high school writings. I I still have it. And I got to say, like, from that moment on, I really just wanted to be a writer. There was a time where I was sort of interested in maybe I would write for a magazine and we had a friend of a friend who was actually Nancy, one of the old editors in chief of Glamour magazine. But my parents' generation did not say like, get you an internship at any cost. Like my parents didn't believe in using connections. Let's put it that way. So like you make your own way. I I wish like in another world, like I wish maybe somebody had set up something for me like at that time, but that was a dream. But it was, you know, the fact is, is I grew up a kid of, you know, Italian immigrants. Like the idea was, you know, like my dad made it, you know, my mom made it and you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Like those were, they didn't say those things, but there was 
I was very serious flute player and very serious at dance. Not, I don't think I was particularly a prodigy at either, but I was the, the flute people said I had some talent. And I remember saying, maybe I want to be a musician. And I remember we were in New York outside, like on a subway platform. And remember, this has got to be late seventies, early eighties. So you know what New York was like back yes. then. Mm-hmm. And my, I think it was, I don't know which parent because they both have very strong voices. And I think they said, oh, well, that would be great. I mean, like, you just have to be aware that you might not be with the New York Symphony, that you might very well be with the, like, Ohio Symphony. And we were standing on a platform, and I remember visually looking over and seeing, like, a homeless family, like, living with a couch, like, underneath the escalators. And I really did associate the working, like, being a flautist in the Ohio Symphony with basically living under a subway platform. And I... (laughs) And I feel so bad. I meet so many great people from Ohio, but it was sort of like, well, I can't do that. I'll end up in Ohio. <laughs> so I, I was writing the whole time. I mean, and so I've always been writing, but I didn't start really seriously thinking about writing until I was in my second year of law school when I was, and this, I know this is crazy. I was on law review. I was working for two professors. I had a job. I had an externship but I was a little bit bored with law school. And so I took a a class at the Berkeley Extension on writing. And so I started writing short stories again while I was in law school. I also wrote part of a novel in, in law school. And it's such a good premise. It is such a good premise. It's so poorly written, but I am telling you, if anyone has a movie idea they wanna contact me about, the concept is great, five, law students like are on like a spring break in some foreign country where a civil war breaks out and the boundaries go down and it's what those five people choose to do like you know two people just try to get out somebody befriends you know gets involved in the actual strife and it's sort of what happens from there i think it's a great idea (laughs) really bad novel And then after law school, I mean, it really was, I was just so unhappy at practice. I mean, I just recently got back in touch with one of my best friends from law school and I was so hard on all my law school friends. I mean, they were so great, but I was so trying to shed the skin of what I was doing because I just wasn't happy. And so I quit several jobs, did different things. I, that's sort of when I met Eric. I'm like, I got rid of everything. I got rid of the law school boyfriend. I I mean, he wanted children. We were never going to stay together. But I got rid of everything um, in my apartment that was prefabricated because I just decided it was all fake. So every piece of Ikea furniture went onto the sidewalk and I just lived in an empty house with like books and a couch and my bed and like one other thing. And I, my parents thought I was going crazy, but I was like shedding a skin. And that's when I met Eric. And, and that's when I really did start writing in earnest and started thinking like, how can I do this? And it was really, I have to say, it's been almost a 20 year journey of breaking down all the fears that I even had in high school, because I have a great need, whether it's who I am or whether it's just been imprinted on me and my family, but status is important to me. And I don't mean status over people. It's just pride of status. There was a time where when I quit, I did work in a civil firm. I lasted 10 months because I was going to kill myself. And 
and I say that in half seriousness, like in the sense that I was really depressed. There was no way I was drinking too much. I was solving problems with money. Like all the, the, all the points were there and I was crying all the time. And it really did feel like this can't be the rest of my life. Like if this is the rest of my life, I don't see the point. And I remember having a conversation, both my parents at this point, I think heard in my voice that this was not just not wanting to grow up, that this was something a little bit more serious. And it really was. And it's, I, I do, I am a daddy's girl. I have, I, I definitely seek his approval. And I do remember the conversation where he's like, just quit, like, just quit. I just go, you know, work at a yoga studio. He was like, just quit. And I walked in, I had $2,000 in the bank. That's it. I owed $75,000 in student loans. And I just walked in and I said, I'm done. And the thing is the firm was so supportive of me quitting. And they were like, we're so, you know, you're being so brave. And I'm not saying it was perfect from then on in because I struggled for a long time. I did data entry. I did all sorts of weird side jobs that are not on the resume to just sort of survive. But that was when I started really allowing myself to write, create, and imagine a different world. Like, what is this world I can create? And, and, and understand that I'm not going to be prolific enough because I'm too extroverted to just be a writer. I mean, I discovered that about myself too, right? That great period of discovery uh, where I was like, no. And that's sort of how I fell into teaching because I was sort of making a living just as a writer and I got really weird. And and that's like (laughs) when I was like, I need to go out and do something with people. And that's sort of how teaching came into the portfolio of my life. It's a long answer, but that's, you know, that's sort of it. That's a great answer. So now I know you're a creative writer, but what other forms of art? Because you do not contain yourself. You are one of these people that has your finger in everything. And by the way, I just have to put this out there. This is another thing that we have in common. My dad's a lawyer. My mom was a social worker. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that about yours. So there you go. Another thing that we another thing that we have in common. Do you think, can I ask you a question? I know I'm interviewing you next week, but I have a question for you. Did you, do you think your mom had times been different, wanted to have been a lawyer? Mm, no, maybe, I don't know. I, I can't ask her anymore. So yeah. like you, I, I don't know. She's always, she's always wanted to help people. School was hard. I don't know. My mom is a very complex character and, and it's only now, you know, in maybe the last five years, I realized how complex she actually was. So it's a shame. I feel, I feel sad that by the time we're old enough to really want to know our mothers as women, they're gone, that they're gone. And, mm-hmm. and, Oh, and listeners, my mother is still alive, but my mother has Alzheimer's. So it's, it's because I, I wonder, you know, like I wonder our mother's generation where I do, like I have obviously colleagues who are my mother's age and did choose to go to law school. And they were one of two people in law school and they chose to do that. I, there's a part of me that thinks that my mom might've wanted to have been a lawyer and just didn't go that route. I I'm not sure, but I just always, you know, it was more socially acceptable to be the, to be a social worker. 
And she was I yeah. I don't think my parent, my mom would have had the support to be able to do yeah. anything outside of the box. I mean, it was, she is, she was the first in her, well, you know, when, when we talk about this, yeah. you could, but she was also the first in her family to, to go to college and then to actually have a degree beyond that. And she might yeah. be the only one. Well, no, see, I mean. right, like, see, on my mother's side, which is, which is interesting, is that my mother actually, my grandfather, Luigi, went by Lewis, but it was Luigi, I found the birth certificate, you know, but it's Luigi came over when he was 16, and was a baker's son, and ended up, he went to law school, he went, he went to Fordham, he pulled, he got to college, he went to Fordham, and then he went to Fordham Law School, and I have his law key, Wow. Um, he graduated with honors in 1922 or 1924. He is, this is where the mafia strain in my family is. He was one of many in his family who did not go into to, to the organized crime. And he was a solo practitioner. I have a shingle in my office. He got married very late in life. And my grandmother had my mother when she was 42. Yeah. Wow. So I think she was an accident, clearly. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, and my mother, again, it's her story, but I, I, I can share that my mother felt very much like an unwanted child from my, from her mother, but she was the apple of her father's eye. But I do think that in the end, like he was a lawyer for the Catholic diocese. Oh, wow. I, I think that's the term or one of the lawyers, but I have no, again, that's all missed family lore. I don't know that history. My mother sort of also didn't believe in history was all about the future. So she, it was hard to get her to tell stories, but I do know that, you know, they wanted her to go to college, but they wanted her to go locally. She wanted to go away to college and they were like, no, you're a girl, you can't. And so I do feel that that relationship was complicated. And I agree, like your mother, she wouldn't have had the support you know, if she had wanted to do that, it was enough yeah. that she was doing what she was doing. I, I get that. But all right. Well, talk to me now about all the different art that you do, because you do a lot. I love art. I, I have an essay about this on my blog, but really when I, I really realized how limiting I was of myself and how like rigid I was as a child in the sense of always coloring inside the lines making sure like I had to make sure every every color was used evenly or it would be <laughs> unfair to another color like this is <laughs> I mean like it the little like so my favorite colors were blue and green that had to be equal and then I felt that red was going to be left out so I made my sister's favorite color red like I just bossed her right away. I was like, your favorite color is red. I, to this day, I think she says it's red. And I'm like, but what is really, what do you really like? Like, <laughs> I have no idea. And I really did have to unschool like myself. And because I loved art so much, but I was so rigid in my own creative practice that when I was finding writing and really, this is just a testament or going to all be a love letter to San Francisco. It really is because San Francisco is where I found my soul because the idea was just try something like all the pressure of being perfect or doing something in one way just started to leave me when I lived there in a city where people, I was still living in the, it was pre 9-11, but there was still this concept of discover yourself and live your dream. 
And I really became engaged. I took a painting class. I took a drawing class. I played with collage. I really liked working with my hands and working with my hands really became a response to working so much in text. All the jobs I told you that I was doing for money and my love, which is writing, it's all on a screen It's and it's exhausting on the eye. And so to work with my hands, I, it was very meditative. It felt like relief. And so I just kept getting engaged and finding and playing with things in a very freeing way. I mean, my friend Angela will, will, will joke, we took a painting class with this artist, Todd Brown, in the mission. And we would go like every Monday night and, and paint in his class. And then we would go out and probably drink way too much. And the funny thing is, is that my color, everything I made turned into Pepto-Bismol. I mean, I am the worst with color ever. I would have this vision of how it would look and everything would turn into this muddy pink brown color. And I, I think the poor artist was just like, this isn't for you. Um, I have gotten a little bit better over time, but it's, it's the space where I feel freest. Like, so even though I love writing, I have a lot of ego in my writing. I have a lot of ego in teaching. I work really hard to not have ego in either of those things, but I was brought up that ego matters. You know, not by parents. It's just like, I think it's in the ether, right? That we're, we're ego driven. And so to really have a creative practice where if you make mud, it doesn't matter. It's part of the process. And to not be thinking about result and just be thinking about the experience kind of blew my mind and it has moved me forward in lots of ways. And then on top of that, I love art in museums. Like I love contemporary artwork. I love that artwork is, can be less about a story, uh, mm -hmm. which you might feel in realism, but when you look at contemporary, anything in the abstract, it's about evoking an emotion. And yes. I love when you go to a museum, a contemporary art museum, or you go and you go to a sculpture garden and it, it evokes an emotion from you. Oh, like I, I cherish that. And whatever that connection is, I love to try to create it. But also in the art salons I do, I try to, I try to make an experience that feels evocative in some way for other people, because that's, I, if anything, if I have a life work, that's it, you know, to evoke emotion. That is my self-expression to evoke emotion. I'm done. Find us at womenbridgingthegap.com and check out our show notes below for other ways to talk with us.